Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. You mentioned Bob Newhart making fun of American history. <laughs> like outrage if he did like a, a George Washington joke. Yes, the John Birch <laughs> Society wanted to ban Bob Newhart records because he referenced Abraham Lincoln. It just It's all so innocuous by today's standards. The fact that anybody would be really seriously upset about Bob Newhart or Stan Freeberg or the Beatles, it all looks ridiculous in retrospect. But people took it so seriously at the time and took themselves so seriously at the time. And that's sort of what I see today, you know, when somebody gets really upset about the Barbie movie. I mean, how can you take them seriously? But people do. And I think that all the things that we see today on social media, people getting upset about this or that, so much of it, just like that stuff from the 60s with the Beatles, decades from now, when you look back at it, it'll just seem absolutely absurd. Yeah, and Alf, you mentioned Alf. Alf, <laughs> Alf Laverne and Shirley, Welcome Back Cotter, Three's Company, The Adventures of Mighty Mouse, The Simpsons, Beavis and Butthead, South Park, Barney the Dinosaur, The Teletubbies, SpongeBob, Janet Jackson's Nipple. People were indignant about all of these things. Hi, this is Cliff Nesteroff comedy historian and the author of a new book called Outrageous, a history of showbiz and the culture wars. Yes, as you heard, that is the voice of Cliff Nesteroff, who is our guest today on Comedy History 101, where we school you in comedy. Hello, everyone. This is Harmon. How are you? Cliff is one of the top comedy historians out there, frequent guests on such podcasts as WTF. He is also the author of the new book, Outrageous, A History of Showbiz and the Culture Wars, which I just got done reading. And well, you're going to hear a lot more about that in this episode. But before we jump into the episode, a few quick plugs on Friday, December 15th, 7 p.m. at the Talon Bar in Brooklyn. We'll be presenting our show, The Roast of Graham Parsons. Yes, it's a musical storytelling show, which I wrote and features the music of Graham Parsons. The story involves probably one of the most debauched rock and roll stories of all time. Told through, if you know the story of Graham Parsons, the half-cremated body of the musician. Then on December 21st, 7 p.m. at Young Ethel's, also in Brooklyn, I'll be presenting my show, That 80s Improv Challenge. Yes, three improv groups compete by creating scenes based on obscure videos for the 1980s. And this month, it's our special holiday edition. And of course, on January 7th, 7 p.m. at the People's Improv Theater. I'll be presenting my show, AI versus Human Roast Battle. Yes, come on out and see a machine learning AI take on a human comedian in a roast battle of tomorrow. And you can find out all about these upcoming dates and more on my website, harmonleon.com, or on the social medias at harmonleon. And of course, remember to take some time to like, comment, and give a few stars on Comedy History 101. Wherever you get your podcast, show us a little support, a little love, and also we will read your comments on the air. And now, without further ado... You're stupid. Everybody's so stupid. I'm trying to use the phone! Comedy History 101. Again, really enjoyed reading the book. I guess one takeaway is comedy is always almost over <laughs> since the 1800s. 
Yeah, it seems like that's a common refrain that people are always sounding the alarm that you can't joke about anything anymore, that people are too sensitive these days, that it's not like the old days, that young people don't know what's going on and young people accusing old people of being out of touch. It is a very, very common concept, but people don't seem to realize that. So that is one of the reasons I wrote the book was to add some context and demonstrate that what's happening now has happened before. And what I enjoyed from just like a comedy history perspective is learning more about comedy acts in films that were once acceptable, suddenly becoming unacceptable due to a culture shift. And it got me Googling a lot of things. It got me Googling the 1913 Fatty Arbuckle movie, The Riot, which um, I found a clip on YouTube in, in the description is when a girl delivering expensive garments loses them to some Irish shantytown kids. Her boss, a Jewish clother, is livid. So at one time, perfectly fine. And then there's a culture shift and suddenly that's not good. Yeah, I don't know what the reaction was specifically to that movie at the time. I think there was like, if it wasn't that film, it was another sort of Max Senate comedy that was taken out of distribution way back then, like 1912-1913, and re-edited because it had been accused of furthering anti-Semitic stereotypes. But the info I have in there on that movie and on some of the Max Sennett stuff is a guy you should probably interview someday named Brent Walker, who's like mm-hmm. the world's foremost expert on Max Sennett and Hal Roach. He knows everything. He wrote this giant fat book that catalogs every single comedy they ever made and goes into detail about, you know, behind the scenes stuff and reactions to it. And his book was a great resource for me. And he's a really interesting dude. He looks like he's a teenager, but I think he's in his 60s. He's pals with Tom Kenny, the voice of SpongeBob. They're, they're good buds. I think they used to be in a band together. And Brandt in the early 80s wrote a book about the Bowery Boys, who were comedy movie stars in the 1940s and 50s and anyways he really knows his stuff so I kind of rest on the shoulders of some of these other historians out there I write my stuff to be more for a popular audience his books are more for people who are already into Max Senate but really invaluable research that he's done yeah and also just interesting is it was really the Irish that kind of started the whole backlash against stereotypes you know starting in vaudeville which was just a showcase of uh, one stereotype after the other. Well, in the late 1800s, Irish immigrants and Italian immigrants, believe it or not, were not considered white. They were discriminated against as sort of being non-white or foreigners. Part of it was the Catholic influence. There were many Irish Catholics and Italian Catholics. And at the time, Protestantism was the dominant strain in America, and Catholicism was considered this sort of evil foreign influence. So there was bigotry towards Irish immigrants and Italian immigrants. And some of that manifested on the stage, whether or not that was the intent, I don't know. But vaudevillians would do Irish dialect, they would do Italian dialect. Some of the comedians themselves were Irish and Italian, some were not. But yeah, they were furthering tropes and stereotypes, leprechauns, organ grinders, that kind of thing. And as those immigrant groups became more assimilated, they started to reject those portrayals. They wanted realistic portrayals of Irish people on the stage and not just stereotypes. And they organized protests. There was a group called the Clan Nigale. They were probably the most militant. I don't know if they were inspired by the Molly Maguires. They may have been, but they had very aggressive tactics. They would storm theaters. They would detonate stink bombs so everybody would have to evacuate when somebody was on stage doing Irish stereotype comedy. And eventually this led to a change. Theater owners no longer want to take the risk of being sabotaged or having to deal with violence or threats from these Irish betterment groups. And slowly but surely they eroded the most extreme stereotypes from the stage in order to prevent uh, further conflict. And comedy slowly started to evolve. And By the late 60s, when there were other protest groups, Black Power and Latino Power groups, a lot of the editorials that condemned them would say, well, the Irish never complained. What's your (laughs) problem? Not realizing that they had complained uh, 80 years earlier. And that the fact was that by the late 60s, you had all sorts of 
uh, Irish representation on TV, but it wasn't considered uh, Irish, it was just considered American. And so when one Irish stereotype would uh, bubble up, it wasn't as big of a deal because now you had 99 realistic portrayals along with the one stereotype. Whereas way back in the vaudeville area, you had like 99 stereotypes and maybe one realistic portrayal. So when the stereotypes far outweigh the realistic portrayals, that's when the protest happens. That's when the objection happens. And then years later, if there's just one minor stereotype, it's not as a, as a, as big of a deal. What I read elsewhere is the Marx Brothers were originally all portraying stereotypes. The only one that kind of like hung over was Chico. Yeah. Like Harpo is called our Harpo because of the Irish harp and he was Irish character. Yeah, it was just a very common thing. And their uncles were in vaudeville and they did <clears throat> they did what they called a Dutch act. There were Swedish stereotypes. There were Dutch stereotypes. <laughs> there was Native American stereotypes. Yeah, it was just very, very common in those days. And yeah, so the, the Marx Brothers, I mean, Marx Brothers did blackface in some of their iteration. You can, W.C. Fields at one point did blackface. Mae West did blackface. It was just common in that era. Also, an, an act that you brought up that I, I, I Googled and found some images of him is comedian Lou Kelly, who had the character Professor Dope. He played, yes. a, he played a 1920 era a junkie on stage, which was also brought down finally by censorship and morality clause along with, you know, you mentioned, you know, Mae West. Yeah, there was a purge. It was probably around the Prohibition era. When Prohibition came in, they banned all jokes about drinking, all references to drinking, all references to Prohibition itself. Most vaudeville theaters forbade that. If you did that as a comedian, you would be pulled from the circuit or reprimanded. And so, yeah, there was this guy, Luke Kelly, who was a well-known and well-respected comedian in New York, and he did Professor Dope. And it was sort of like a, a pantomime, you know, like Charlie Chaplin was known as the little tramp, and this guy was known as Professor Dope. So he would do these sort of tableaus of the guy high on drugs. I don't know. I can't remember if it was morphine or opium, but those were the two predominant narcotics of the era. So it probably was one or the other. And this was just considered in bad taste. I don't know if people felt that he was promoting drugs or, um, or if they had sympathy for the drug addict and felt that it was bad taste to ridicule a drug addict. It was a very popular act. He was a headliner and he was always billed as Professor Dope. But uh, in the late teens or early 20s, there was a new ban on vaudeville performances that uh, even referenced drugs. And so his whole act was had to be thrown out and it, he had perfected it over the course of several years and now he suddenly had no act. So he wasn't too happy about that. But I don't remember any type of organization of drug addicts to protest that censorship. <laughs> yeah. Do, do you know what happened to Professor Dope? Was that just the end of his career? <clears throat> no, I think Lou Kelly went on to do other things. I think he may have been in the uh, Ziegfeld Follies later on. But I think he just adapted. I think he just adapted. But yeah, that, that act is uh, completely forgotten. But it is funny to think of like a, a drug addict type character existing in show business and in comedy over 100 years ago. Excuse me! Yeah, so you mentioned like adapting. Is there characters that are, are comedians that refuse to adapt and therefore just slowly ended their career you mentioned one comic who i checked out uh let's see brother dave gardner oh yeah he was like a southern character i guess to explain to the listeners he was kind of like jeff foxworthy later with racism his character wasn't racist it was later on he himself as a human being became racist he did this character brother dave gardner who was like a a preacher from the South, and he would refer to everybody as beloved. He would end every sentence with 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 the word beloved. I'm, this is a this is a sordid stale, my beloved. You know, he would say that type of type of thing. He had appeared on the Tonight Show many times with Jack Parr in the late fifties, early sixties, and that was the era of the comedy record boom when comedy records became big for the first time with people like Mort Saul and Jonathan Winters and the Smothers Brothers. He was under contract to RCA Victor, and he put out, I think, 
four records for RCA. They were all bestsellers, especially the first one. It was on the Billboard charts. It was a huge seller. You can still find his records in used record stores. And yeah, he was he was a popular comedian in the early 60s. His act was mostly innocuous. He had a cigarette between his fingers. So he was like the the bad boy preacher. He was like a south, Southern preacher, but he smoked. And he did jokes about smoking pot as well. And then he just sort of vanished from the scene. He'd been so popular in the early 60s, and you very, very seldom heard from him in the late 60s. So there was this journalist, a guy named Larry L. King, not to be confused with Larry King, yes. but Larry King. He worked for Harper's Magazine, and later he became well-known when he wrote a play, which became a famous movie, called The, what's it called? the Last Little Whorehouse in Texas with Burt Reynolds, you know, they turned it into a big movie. So that guy, he was a journalist in the late 60s, and he wondered whatever happened to Brother Dave Gardner. So he wrote an article for Harper's called Whatever Happened to Brother Dave Gardner, and he tracked him down, and he found him in the Deep South doing these real, like, roughshod roadhouses. And it turns out that at that stage of his career, Brother Dave Gardner was playing to a completely different demographic. He had become very influenced by a guy named H.L. Hunt, who was a billionaire from Texas, who funded all kinds of far-right propaganda. He was a benefactor for the John Birch Society and was convinced that the civil rights movement was a communist conspiracy. And Dave Gardner became friends with him and he became influenced by his conspiracy theories and he started to believe it. And so by the late 60s, he was going on stage and he was condemning Martin Luther King, calling him the N-word, and he would rant and rave and did all these racist routines. And as a result, he became the Ku Klux Klan's favorite comedian. And Larry L. King discovered that by 69, Dave Gardner was primarily performing for Klan functions and the Grand Dragon's birthday party. And he chronicled it in this issue of Harper's. And it was quite shocking, although... You know, not that many people know that story today. Some like older comedy devotees, record collectors know Brother Dave Gardner because those records are still around. Records that had no racist content. But nobody really knows that story. But yeah, he went full hard right, racist right, went a little bit crazy. Career never really was the same. Yeah, I tried to Google and find, you know, anything about, you know, his racist sort of past. I found like one later era clip he had like a routine about a haunted house that you could, it sort of borderlines on that. And you could totally see, you know, he's kind of white haired. He's older. You could see that kind of shift, you yeah. know, easily enough. And then there's just like the whole other era of censorship on comedy where it wasn't racist enough. So therefore it got like censored example you gave was, you know, Eddie Cantor on his radio show and his sponsor was Texaco and yeah. they were kind of like Nazi love and oil selling Texaco didn't like Eddie Cantor's material. That was a against Nazis. Yeah. Well, Eddie Cantor outside of comedy was one of the leading spokespeople for the Hollywood anti-Nazi league. And he lobbied for Jewish refugees in the, fairly early on, 1933, 34, 35. And Texaco didn't appreciate that. They were afraid it would alienate German listeners. They didn't want him getting into politics. He, he really wasn't getting into politics on his show. It was off stage on his own time, mostly. But Texaco was constantly having meetings and saying, we can't allow the listeners to know that Eddie Cantor ever has a serious thought. He's got to stop doing this. And then there was an incident, I think, in 1937, after they finished their broadcast at CBS Radio in Hollywood in front of a studio audience. Eddie Cantor came back out after the show was done and, and talked about the plight of Jewish refugee, refugees trying to flee Nazi Germany and how we, as Americans, we must do our part to help. And he, he was pleading directly to the studio audience, and somebody stood up and heckled told him to shut up. We didn't come here to hear any anti-Hitler propaganda. And so this couple stood up, they heckled, they started to walk out. And there was this comedian that was on the Eddie Cantor show at the time named Burt Gordon. And he sucker punched them, knocked them to the ground. And this huge melee broke out, it was reported in the news. Anyways, six months later, the Eddie Cantor program, which like you say, was sponsored by Texaco, was canceled. 
And then it was uh, discovered much later that the chairman of Texaco, he had to resign in shame when it was revealed that he was sharing secret shipping routes with the Nazis. He was, he was connected to the American government and he was sharing gov- American government secret, secrets with the Nazis and apparently supplying them Texaco oil for the Nazi cause. So none of that was known at the time that they were sponsoring Eddie Cantor and condemning Eddie Cantor for his anti-Nazi views. Yeah, and again, it's like it was all corporate interest, John Birch Society. We don't want to piss off our southern bigoted listeners, you know, you know, such as, you know, why Amos and Andy kind of continued on for decades. Yeah, Amos and Andy's history is a little bit complicated. You know, it was more objectionable early on rather than later. Ironically, it was removed from TV in the early 1950s, although by that point, it was probably at its least racist point. It had an all-black cast by that point. When it started on radio, it starred two white guys, Charles Carell and Freeman Gosden, doing what they consider to be black dialect. They were playing all the characters. They were all black characters, but they were all performed by these white dudes. And they had been inspired by blackface uh, minstrel stuff in the teens and 20s. Before they even knew each other, they were both inspired by blackface performance. And so when they came to air in the late 20s, that's sort of what informed the Amos and Andy show. And also, way back in the 1800s, the name Amos was associated with you know story, stories of slavery and slave tales, sort of that Uncle Remus-ish type stuff and... Sambo was a famous name associated with that type of thing. So Amos, the name Amos was associated with that as well. So just the name of the show, people knew that that's what it uh, signified. And the theme music to the original Amos Mandy radio show was the same theme music, the same theme music from D.W. Griffith's The Birth of a Nation. So there are all these signifiers in that initial Amos Mandy that lets you know that it was sort of the blackface persuasion, even though it was audio. And there was a major protest campaign against the show around 1930, 31. The Pittsburgh Courier, one of the famous black newspapers of the era, led this campaign. They wrote many editorials condemning Amos and Andy, saying we're beyond this now. This shouldn't still be on the air. Many people who are readers of the Pittsburgh Courier wrote letters of support. They published hundreds of letters condemning Amos and Andy over the course of the, 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 the next year and a half. Eventually, they delivered a petition, 750,000 signatures to the FCC, saying we want this show removed from the air. We consider it a slander to all African Americans. And because Black people didn't have that much purchasing power in those days, the threat of a boycott or a protest campaign against the sponsor was not all that intimidating. And they didn't do anything. They didn't change it. They didn't remove it. They just ignored the protest. By the late 30s and throughout the 1940s, the show was still on the air. It was less odious than it had started out to be. It had lost much of its blackface influence, but it still starred two white guys doing black dialect. But they expanded the cast. It was more of a sitcom by that point. They hired some black actors to do incidental parts and an Asian actress to do an incidental part. And then... By the time television came in, a lot of radio shows, a lot of radio comedies were being adopted for TV, George Burns and Gracie Allen and the Jack Benny program, and they were having success. So they decided they would bring Amos Mandy to television. Only problem was it starred two white guys doing black voices. And in the post-war era, blackface was taboo. So they were not going to bring a blackface TV show to the screen. So what they did was they cast some of the most talented black comedians in America to star in the Amos and Andy TV show. And if you see the show today, it just sort of feels like a sitcom. They talk in a weird dialect, but the the premises are not as racist as a lot of the stuff that you would see in movies in the 30s. It just feels like a typical sitcom. It was written by people who would later create Leave it to Beaver and the Munsters, so it sort of has that type of a tone. But Because it was called the Amos and Andy show, and everybody remembered the controversy surrounding Amos and Andy, the very title signified racist stereotypes. So as soon as it was announced, 
there was protest against it. And ultimately that protest succeeded and removed it from the air. But all these decades later, when people talk about it, they think of it as being protested because it was so viciously racist, the TV show. But really the TV show was protested, not because the TV show was viciously racist, but because the original radio show was racist and it carried this stigma for decades. Yeah, how can they shake that? And, and one of the old guard arguments was, you know, you're making African-Americans look silly, but, you know, what about Laurel and Hardy? They make, you know, white people look silly or Red Skelton. <laughs> but, you know, it's just the obvious is, you know, those are white characters with white writers writing that. Yeah, yeah. And then also, like I said earlier about the stereotypes, it was there's there might be two dumb white guys, but all the other characterizations throughout the culture, you also have smart white guys, you have professional white guys, like they're not all demeaning stereotypes, where when it came to ethnic minorities, more often than not, it was a demeaning stereotype. You know, you look at Asian characters in movies in 30s, 40s, and 50s with Pigeon English or white people in yellow face, you know, there were no realistic portrayals of Asian people. So it, it, it's not a matter of like, well, how, how come white people don't complain about Laurel and Hardy? It's because there's hundreds of others ex of examples of white characters that are not a couple of dummies, you know. So it's when you balance it, when you balance realistic portrayals in, in a proportional number, then the stereotype is not as likely to cause hysteria. But when you only have slander, then, of course, people are going to object. And then also interesting was sort of LGBTQ portrayals on TV were, were offensive, but for different reasons, because the right wing thought of it as promoting sexual promiscuity. Well, yeah, the, the religious influences didn't like to see any inference or depiction of homosexuals at all. And then gay activists did not like to see homosexual stereotypes depicted. So it was sort of a weird thing in the late 60s and throughout the 1970s, it seemed like progress. So oh, there's gay characters in a TV show, but at the same time, they're stereotypes. So it had been taboo to mention it at all for much of the 20th century in TV and movies. There were coded inferences here and there, but to explicitly confess that somebody was a gay character was very taboo. But yeah, it was it was strange that that was the case. So, and that that happened with the Amos and Andy show as well, because bigots in the South objected to black actors on the screen, and then black activists objected to the fact that stereotypes were on the screen. So you had these two opposing viewpoints, and then the creators or the sponsors stuck in the middle, and they were exasperated. They were like, "Well, I, we can't win. No matter what we do, we're getting it from both angles." which ultimately had a unfortunate effect. They just kind of purged all of it from the screen, not necessarily gay characters, but in the 50s, certainly they just purged black actors from television because they didn't want to get accused of furthering racist stereotypes and they didn't want to get accused of, uh, of whatever a bigot would accuse them of. So yeah, that, that is one of the more interesting things when you get protests from both sides. Even, even in the 1990s, a movie like Basic Instinct, it was protested by evangelicals for its uh, sexuality, and it was also protested by liberal groups for furthering gay stereotypes. And talk about, you know, we know how it feels to get angry tweets, but to actually get physically written letters just seems so much more creepier, like angry letters saying i know where you live <laughs> yeah steve allen the first host of the tonight show in the late 50s he became a member of sane which was an organization sane for a sane nuclear policy it was a nuclear disarmament group many people in show business were part of it marlon brando marilyn monroe arthur miller ozzy davis harry belafonte anyways Steve Allen mentioned it on one of his Sunday night programs, the Steve Allen show. And as a result, he started to receive all these death threats in the mail. Sane had been condemned by the John Birch Society in their newsletter. And so I guess this inspired people 
to target Steve Allen. They accused him of being a communist. They accused him of being un-American. And there was a guy who sent a series of death threats to Steve Allen pretty much every week over the course of a year saying, it would give me no greater pleasure than to come down to your office in Sherman Oaks and put a bullet between your head, your, 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 between your eyes. You're nothing but a, but a communist piece of shit, you know, like literally with those types of words, full on profanity, which we don't usually associate with the late 1950s. We more associate that with today and the type of comments you might get on the internet. But yeah, it was like very serious uh, vitriol. And it was sort of intimidating in that era because in order to write a letter to somebody, it took a lot more effort than to just tweet at them. You know, if somebody's going to go through the effort of composing a long letter, knowing the person's address, paying for postage and doing it on a regular basis, there's a, there's a worry there that they might mean business. Whereas, when you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. When something like that happens to you in the comments section on the internet, it's a lot easier to ignore it. Yeah, exactly, exactly. You know, communism, that was like one of the, the go-to arguments from the right. You know, this is going to promote communism. What is like some of your favorite ridiculous censorship campaigns brought on by the right? You mentioned, you know, the Beatles and the John Birch Society. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, that's a good one. They, I mean, there's so much hatred towards the Beatles. If you go through the archives and the letters to the editor, you know, older people just didn't think it was music. They just thought it was noise. But yeah, there was a great book that the John Birch Society distributed. It was published by an imprint run by a guy named Billy James Hargis, who was a famous Baptist pe preacher in the 60s. He was sort of like Jerry Falwell before Jerry Falwell. and this book was called Communism, Hypnotism, and the Beatles. And it was written by this guy, David A. Nobel, who's still alive. He's part of the Council for National Policy. They advised Donald Trump's transition team in 2016. And there was David A. Nobel's name on the list of advisors. He wrote this book, Communism, Hypnotism, and the Beatles, in which he seriously argued that the Beatles were a communist conspiracy, that the Soviets had put some sort of subliminal thing in their music, what they called a broken treble cleft that would <laughs> break down the defenses of American youth so that they were so weak-kneed, they would be more easily overridden and primed for a communist takeover. This book actually argued that, and they sold it in John Birch Society bookstores all around the country. You can find it online. It's something of a camp classic. But, you know, it never really gained traction. But there were some people in America who truly believed this stuff. Yeah. And just other kind of jokes that were considered offensive, you know, such as, you know, you mentioned Bob Newhart making fun of American history. Plus, like outrage if he did like a, a George Washington joke. Yes, the John Birch Society <laughs> wanted to ban Bob Newhart records because he referenced Abraham Lincoln. They wanted to ban a guy named Stan Freeberg, who did a comedy record called uh, Stan Freeberg's History of the United States of America, Volume 1. And it did get pulled from several stores. Wherever the John Birch Society had the most influence, places like Arizona, Orange County, California, they would get these records pulled, pulled from the airwaves. They would have concerted boycott campaigns of sponsors, and they would target the radio stations. They would write letters the Daughters of the American Revolution, that organization, they also targeted Stan Freeberg for his comedy records. And one of them said that she would fight Stan Freeberg's comedy record to the death simply <laughs> because it was a, a parody of American history. They made they had sketches on there about Christopher Columbus and about you know Washington crossing the Delaware or whatever. It just, it's all so innocuous by today's standards. The fact that anybody would be really seriously upset about Bob Newhart or Stan Freeberg or the Beatles, it all looks ridiculous in retrospect. 
but people took it so seriously at the time and took themselves so seriously at the time. And that's sort of what I see today, you know, when somebody gets really upset about the Barbie movie. I mean, how can you take them seriously? But people do. And I think that all the things that we see today on social media, people getting upset about this or that, so much of it, just like that stuff from the 60s with the Beatles, decades from now, when you look back at it, it'll just seem absolutely absurd. Yeah, and ALF. You mentioned ALF. ALF. <laughs> ALF. Laverne and Shirley. Welcome back, Cotter. Three's Company. The Adventures of Mighty Mouse. The Simpsons. Beavis and Butthead. South Park. Barney the Dinosaur. The Teletubbies. SpongeBob. Janet Jackson's Nipple. People were indignant about all of these things. They're all so innocent and unimportant in terms of like getting worked up in a frenzy about, you know, it's just, it's crazy how angry people get about TV and movies. I understand when people get angry about something that is bigoted, but all this other stuff is just an absurdity. And then the irony is that a lot of the greatest anger out there is not even about bigotry. It's against people who oppose bigotry. How dare you? You censor because yeah. you oppose the N-word or something. You know, it's crazy. Yeah, it's always like the last grasp at change from the right when change is occurring is yeah. uh, throwing out the censorship argument. You're stupid. Everybody's so stupid. One constant, it seems, is, you know, back in the 1800s, the Bible, which manifest all the way up to the Smothers Brothers TV show all you know even still today that always seems to be one constant all the way through history yeah people don't want that uh, ridiculed I mean you could argue to be fair that that's true of anybody of any religion nobody wants their religion defamed but the the Christian evangelical movement in America has been very powerful in recent history and then the founding of the country, you had Calvinists and you had Puritans and you had people that were very censorious. You know, they subjugated indigenous people, banned all of their cultural practices, you know, in Puritan regions, playing cards was banned. It was the phrase they used was amusements. They banned <laughs> amusements because it contradicted the Ten Commandments because they believed that to be entertained was to be idle, that you should be working. So if you were watching a play or if you were dancing or if you were playing cards, you weren't working. So amusements were banned in many jurisdictions right at the very inception of the country. Yeah. And another constant is always, you know, older comedians complaining against uh, younger comedians. One surprise was reading about Mort Saul, who, you know, when he came onto the scene, he rocked the old guard by wearing a cardigan sweater yeah, <laughs> and, you know, reading from the newspaper, which you could say, you know, begot your modern day, you know, daily show, but yeah. he kind of flipped in the seventies. Yeah. I mean, he didn't think he flipped, but he kind of, I think Mort Saul was one of these people. He just wanted to contradict whatever was the norm. So as early as 64, he condemned the civil rights movement. He said it wasn't doing a bit of good. He criticized Dick Gregory, said he was doing more harm than good. Um, he said, well, well what, what has it achieved? It just got a bunch of people arrested. That's it. And by the late 60s, when gay liberation and women's liberation became movements, and by the 70s, when they were sort of accepted, Mortsall rejected them. He went on the Dick Cavett show and he said, it really bugs me when they equate words like racism and sexism and he said something to the effect that he'd never met an intelligent women, woman and that he would meet women who tried to be smart like him by using big words, you know. And Mort would say these things and he wouldn't get laughs. He would just kind of come across like a jerk. And you can watch footage of him on the Dick Cavett show with the other panelists, John Simon, a critic from the New York Times. And they get into a big spat. They get into a big fight. And John Simon says something like that, like, maybe you're not as smart as you think you are or something like that. And Mortsall looks out to the studio audience and points. He goes, they know, my people know. And then the audience <laughs> boos him. So I don't know. He kind of fell into this trap where he wasn't working that much anymore. Not like he had been in the 50s. And he blamed a conspiracy. He said that 
people just didn't want to hear the truth. But ah. when you watch it now in, in retrospect with perspective, you can really see that probably the reason he wasn't working that much is because he became very difficult and unpleasant to be around. Yeah. You can't handle the truth. That's always another mantra that gets thrown out, yeah. you know, particularly, you know, nowadays. And, and as far as like adapting going is what made me laugh. And then I, I went down the rabbit hole of listening to some clips was uh Buddy Hackett's Chinese waiter character. But by 1985, he said, you know, when asked, you know, if he does it, he he, he had enough sense to go, you know, I don't do it anymore. You know, times have changed. Yeah, he was being interviewed by a guy who felt it was bad that he couldn't do it anymore. He said he, he the, the interviewer was sort of trying to blame other people for Buddy Hackett not doing it anymore. And Buddy Hackett said, no, no, I, I dropped it. It's what made him famous. He would talk in pidgin English and pull his eyes back. And he put out a comedy record that was all about that. And but like any comedian, most as they become established, they do not continue to do the routines that they started out doing, even if it has nothing to do with race. But yeah, Buddy Hackett, to his credit, dropped it and, and said, no, it, it makes sense that I don't do that anymore. just an interesting note have you heard like anything about this up in canada where you're from i mean i know there was a few years back there was a comedian that was up at the edinburgh festival uh mike ward who, who i guess he got fined also yeah yeah i mean different countries have different laws i really only talk about the united states canada had two incidences like that both of them were ridiculous in my opinion Mike Ward, and then there was another guy named Guy Earl. Guy Earl was in Vancouver. Mike Ward is in Montreal. And they both were sort of turned into these free speech martyrs for a little while by right-wing press, which was unfortunate. But both situations were similar. This guy, Guy Earl, who was just an amateur comic, like, it was so weird. I was doing stand-up in Vancouver at the time. And then this became a big news story. And me and my friends had never even heard of the guy. Not a very big city. We certainly would have heard of him. But he was like doing an open mic for the first time. Got in trouble. He insulted somebody in the audience who was gay. And then they filed a complaint with a human rights commission. And then same thing with, with Mike Ward. He had done a joke making fun of a disabled celebrity. And a, a complaint was filed with a human rights commission. So in Canada, they have these human rights tribunals. You don't have that in the United States. They're pretty arbitrary. They're staffed by people from the legal profession or retired judges, and they look at certain cases to see if people have been discriminated against, and then they will reward you know, a cash settlement to the, to the complainant if they find that they had been, have had their rights violated in some way. So when it comes to comedy, it's a weird thing it's, it's you have to look at it within the confines of art but in these examples they were weird examples because with mike ward he was making fun of somebody who's in the public eye and that's supposed to be permissible under the guidelines of satire and so that was one of the debates here is he slandering disabled people or is he making fun of a celebrity who's a fair target and it drained mike's uh, resources he had to fight this for years and years and years it dragged on forever and eventually he was vindicated. He was found, I don't know how they rule it, if they use words like guilty or not guilty, but he was found not guilty of betraying or, or what's the word I'm looking for, of uh, violating this person's human rights. Um, but the ruling was like a five to four or something. So four people had actually felt that he had violated this person's human rights. And with this guy, Guy Earl in Vancouver, I can't remember if he won or lost his case. But it, would be, it was basically like if you were in a comedy club and you got heckled and then you put down the heckler and then got sued for putting down the heckler. Canada's got some weird laws, but we don't have that here in America. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I remember him up in Edinburgh, his poster, he had like police tape over his mouth. Yeah. As if to say, look, this is a danger zone. <laughs> well, it was a weird thing. Like normally I don't agree with you know people saying in comedy ah oh, you can't say anything anymore and even that example it doesn't mean you couldn't say anything anymore but it was a very unusual situation and an unnecessary 
situation. It never should have gotten to that point. It should not have cost him tens of thousands of dollars to defend himself. And, you know, it was way out of proportion to anything, really. Yeah, I think now with, you know, again, it's like everyone says, uh, we have no free speech, but you do because you have a million means to get your speech out there with social media and all. But I think the way, what social media does is they take a comedian's act or joke. I remember this done with like Gilbert Godfrey or Tracy Morgan. And then they'll go, they they they, they make it like it was a quote from them and not even put it in the context that oh, yeah. this was in their act or any kind of you know, just, context just, to the act. I just had that happen last week when I was in New York. We did an event with Mark Marin to promote the book. And somebody asked him a question about comedians aging and I may, I gave the examples that I have in the book about Mae West and Steve Allen and Mort Saul. They sort of start out as the renegade firebrand when they're young. As they get older, they start to condemn things that are younger than them, just the way that they had been condemned when they were young. And Mark Marin said something, he goes, I guess the lesson is some of these guys just got to die sooner. And then <laughs> he got a, big, got a big laugh. And then he said, I think we're seeing it now with Bill Maher. And then that got a big laugh. And then the next day, there was like a headline in the tabloids. It was like, Mark Marin to Bill Maher, drop dead. And then <laughs> you, it was like no humor whatsoever in the column. It was like super serious. And I was like, Jesus Christ. But yeah, so that definitely happens. Yeah, that's a, like Gilbert. I forgot what the, maybe it was the Affleck Duck era. Yeah. He would just go closer, like they would say, Gilbert, Gilbert Godfrey was quoted saying, and just not even put it in there that he was a even a comedian yeah 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 that <laughs> happens a lot yeah but I, I guess you know again just to wrap up a few things you know again with social media you know we got you know Michael Richards caught on video where in yeah. different eras it would be like something like you know Richard Pryor at the Hollywood Bowl that incident if right you know that was Twitter that probably would have done the same. Yeah. As as it did with Michael Richards. Yeah, the weird thing is that Michael Richards was one of the first comedians to get into serious trouble in the social media age. But at that moment in time, he didn't have any defenders. Whereas today, when any comedian gets in trouble for anything, there's a whole legion of defenders because they see it as like indicative of some sort of movement. I cannot recall even one example when that Michael Richards thing went down, it was on CNN, it was on the internet. I didn't see one person say free speech, free speech, free speech in defense of it. Not one. But if it happened today, I bet you would, because people have conformed to this idea that free speech is under attack when the reality is that people oppose bigotry. You know, there's new, not even new, but there's some slurs that are taboo now that were not taboo or as taboo 20, 30 years ago. And when people say, you know, free speech is under under attack, it's really the only example they have are people protesting bigotry, people shutting down speakers that they consider to be bigots, and frequently they are bigots. So the, the, the conversation has changed, but I think it has changed intentionally, not because society, society's attitudes or even what is permissible has changed so drastically, but the way it's framed has been changed drastically, almost intentionally. But yeah, that Michael Richards incident, he said the N-word several times and everybody sort of distanced themselves from him. Nobody went to bat for him. I think it would be different today with politics. People will defend the in indefensible in the name of free speech but most of the things that are taboo the most of the things that you can get in trouble for saying fall into that category of bigotry or the perception of bigotry yeah i mean again the adage of free speech is you defend things you don't agree with yeah and if you like it or not that's if you want to have your say you know you have to also defend the right to say horrible things that you're against but you also need to defend the, you know, it goes both ways. You have to also defend the anti-racist. You know, a lot of these controversies about college campuses, it's like all these students are opposed to free speech because they're protesting this speaker. But protest is also free speech. So it's like a contradiction inherent in it. Nobody ever 
wants to censor somebody they agree with ever, ever, ever. It's always you're censoring your adversary or your opponent. But even people who say, you know, I believe in the free speech of those I disagree with, even they seem to have exceptions. They just don't even, they don't admit it or confess to it or cop to it, but there's mm-hmm. always a contradiction there. Exactly. Like I, I once, uh, I did a story, I went to Havana, Cuba, I did a story on the Cuban stand-up comedy scene there where wow. comedians don't have free speech <laughs> and you can be, ar- and you can, you know, you'll be arrested you know, 1974 Richard Pryor style for speaking out against, you know, Castro what, or the what, system. What year was that? that, you did uh, that? This was about like five years ago. So I used to be a journalist wow. for uh, Vice and I went down there and there was a Australian comedian who was born in Cuba, but now he lives in Australia and spends half the year in Cuba. So he was my navigator around the Havana wow. stand-up scene. And I met like the guy who's considered the godfather of uh, Cuban comedy who started all these venues. And it was just so interesting to go, okay, you can't make fun of Castro, but everyone knows, say, Castro was born in, I'll just say, October. And that is, you know, astrological sign is Libra. So they would go up there and go, hey, I'm going to read the horoscopes for October for Libras. And everyone would know you're talking about Castro. So. Therefore, you know, like these comedians that we see nowadays where, you know, they have the same five talking points about, you know, these right wing comedians, you know, they're doing the same five talking points and it gets pretty redundant. In in Cuba, you would have, we, when you don't have the ability to say something and you want to say it and express yourself artistically, you find these roundabout ways to do so, which is far more inventive and because you have to use your creativity to accomplish that. So what what else, what other type of comedy do they have? It wasn't all like coded political, was it? Was there also just like innocuous? Yeah, there's like, okay. So again, this was all like uh, translated through my comedian friend. It, it was this place in Havana where it's a weekly show in a huge theater. It sells out. Tickets are probably about like 50 cents to a dollar to get in. And it, and it completely sells out. And it's like, so that's like their biggest comedy show. And it would be like uh, stand-ups. And then it would be kind of really kind of Telemundo, really kind of really broad comedy. Yeah. And then there would be like a lot of like kind of impressionist sort of thing. And then really? guys sort of telling like old joke jokes. So it would be kind of a mix of that. And Wow. How interesting. Yeah, because they can't get their influences from American comedians, you know, because right, that, right. that pipeline is usually cut out. So it would be like maybe Spanish-speaking comedians that are from Miami that could come over and perform, or they get it from other, you know, Spanish-speaking countries like Venezuelan comedians. And there was a big Venezuelan comedian who was sort of impressionist, and so he would be one of the main influences of these comedians. But, you know, it's in that kind of vacuum where you can't just go on YouTube and watch other comedians do comedy. Wild, wild, man. Yeah, I mean, every every country is different. Every culture is different. Every political climate is different. My book is specifically about the United States because there are other atmospheres where there is li- limited freedom of speech. You know, there's comedy scenes in India and Egypt and Saudi Arabia, I think. And then they, they, they're very repressive and sometimes comedians get arrested the way they used to in the United States in the 50s and 60s and that's why I always feel like it's a bit of an insult when people say comedy's under attack here or you can't joke about anything anymore when clearly you have so much more free expression at your disposal here than these other countries where people are actually arrested and jailed and so it's so it's sort of like you know it's just insulting to people that are actually persecuted exactly exactly I think it's like of course, you could say what you want. There's just more avenues, say, in the 60s for people to voice their opinions against it, where, you know, like you said, you know, you had to write physical letters to Steve Allen to voice yeah. your outrage. Where here now, just anyone, you know, on their phone could you yeah. know, put up their opinion and mobilize and, and voice to their, you know, echo chamber. Yeah.
and the current outrage, you know, I guess, you know, just a couple things to wrap up here is, you know, comedian Matt Reif, you know, first, you know, I, I watched, you know, a little bit of his Netflix special. It just seemed kind of pretty hacky. And then I read your book and it's like, oh, wait, all these comedians that are coming out against him, it's not like a question of free speech. It's more point B, the old guard looking at newer comedians and going, you know, that's just not funny. I mean, I'm not, I'm not saying it isn't not funny because, uh, you know, it's pretty Ralphie may ask derivative. But, you know, again, it was like after reading your book and, and thinking about the controversy, again, it's just old comedians complaining against young comedians. Yeah, there's a bit of that. You know, Matt Reif, sometimes people deride him because of his popularity on TikTok, not realizing that he actually started in clubs. You know, he's been doing stand-up, I guess, for 11 years, 12 years. He looks like he wouldn't have been doing it that long because he looks young, but he started when he was like 13 or something or 14. He saw Dane Cook, was inspired by Dane Cook. And <laughs> as you know, stand-up comedy has three ingredients. One natural born funniness two experience and three confidence so he's got two of those three and two of the three i mean that's almost all of it so you might not find him that funny but he's got the confidence and he's got the experience it's more than you could say for a lot of uh, youtube comedians who started on the internet and then tried to do stand-up that often doesn't work at all, you know, because you go from being popular online, you think it's going to be a cakewalk to translate to the stage, even though you have no stage experience and you fall flat. Uh, Matt Rife started on the stage and then became popular through TikTok. You know, I'm not a fan of his, but there's also like room at the top for good and bad. And I don't really feel like anybody is taking a job away from somebody else all throughout history. You have great comedians and mediocre comedians and bad comedians who are famous. You also have great comedians and mediocre comedians and bad comedians who are not famous. They just exist concurrently. And, you know, if you're a comic, you focus on your own act and whatever. And two last questions. What What is your history with comedy? What was the initial thing you remember that really got you hooked on comedy when you were a kid? Ernie and Bert. I liked Ernie <laughs> and Bert because uh, Jim Henson and Frank Oz, they had a great chemistry and they really were like a comedy team. They also did the voices, of course, of Kermit the Frog and Fozzie Bear. It was a different characters, but the similar back and forth chemistry, sort of a straight man comedian setup. And so that was before I had ever seen a comedy team like Laurel and Hardy or Abner Costello or the Smothers Brothers. So I just I just connected with that and the Muppets and the Muppet Show. I remember Steve Martin hosting the Muppet Show. A lot of the people in comedy that did that show, that was my introduction to them. I remember the Muppet movie had Steve Martin, Richard Pryor, Mel Brooks, had all these comedy giants. I didn't know who any of these people were, but I just kind of liked that. And then Looney Tunes cartoons, you know, those old cartoons that Mel Blanc voiced. A lot of the voice actors were actually comedy actors from radio. So I didn't even realize it, but I was absorbing these comedy influences, a piece of trivia. The Muppet Show, most of the episodes were directed by this guy, Jack Burns. Jack Burns was George Carlin's partner when they were in a comedy team together before George Carlin went solo. So there's all these sort of comic influences that I absorbed watching things as a child, although most people would have described it as children's television rather than comedy. But Sesame Street, Ernie and Bert, The Muppets, The Muppet Show, The Muppet Movie, Looney Tunes cartoons, they all were inhabited inhabited by comedy writers, comedy directors, and comic performers, even though people sometimes just dismiss them as being for kids. Yeah, Jim Henson was like doing like trippy, like hippie stuff in the 60s. There was oh, a great, sure, yeah. at the Museum of Motion Picture here in New York, a great exhibit of just his early stuff up until, you know, Sesame Street and beyond. But yeah, he was like, you know, just a forefront of just trippy stuff when he started. Yeah, for sure. And lastly, just any other takeaways from your experience from uh, writing? Uh... No, not really. I mean, I don't know. I, I had to cut a lot out. You know, when you write a book, can't just be a list of things. It has to have a structure. But 
my first drafts are always just research with no writing in them. So if you read the book, there's like a couple of things about Carol Burnett where people are complaining, if you can believe it, about Carol Burnett of all people. And when I finished my first draft, I had like 70 letters to the editor, people complaining about Carol Burnett. <laughs> and my editor was like, you know, this is funny, but yeah, you can't put 70 letters to the editor from the 70s complaining about Carol Burnett. Like choose one, maybe two. So I had to whittle it all the way down. And then I worried, like when this book has come out, now that this book has come out, that people will look at it and they'll see only one letter of complaint and they'll be like, well, it's cherry picking. It's like, no, like this is how publishing works. You can't have 70 examples, even though I have 70 examples. But I don't know what my takeaway would be from writing the book, but I enjoyed doing it. And some people have said that they found it both alarming and reassuring to read how little things have changed in terms of American behavior. Well done. And where can people find the book? In every bookstore <laughs> and every library. Anywhere you want to get a book, you can get it. Cliff, thank you so much. I really enjoyed talking to you, and I really enjoyed uh, reading the book. It was, it, was, it was great. I appreciate it. Thank you, Harmon. All right. Take care. Bye-bye. Yes, that wraps up our episode of Comedy History 101. And we schooled you in some comedy. And once again, remember to take some time to like, subscribe, and comment on Comedy History 101, wherever you get your podcasts, and we will read your comments right here on the air. Such as this, a comment from Haunted Hollywood Fan on our history of the 1979 Comedy Store Strike. Haunted Hollywood Fan writes... Comedy Store is haunted, and so is the rest of Hollywood. Cool paranormal stories. Thank you, Haunted Hollywood fan, for your comment. And remember, if you want to find out more about my upcoming shows, you can go to my website, HarmanLeon.com, or follow me on the social medias at HarmanLeon. And we will be back soon with a brand spanking new episode. And until then... Bye-bye.